3: company that's moved pizza out of the Stone Age. Baking Steel founder Andres Lagston, a lifelong cook who worked the famed pizza oven at Figs in Boston, is also a member of a steel manufacturing family in Stoughton Mass. As luck would have it, he managed to find an ingenious way to make these two careers intersect 10 years ago, while listening to an interview with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine. Mirvold mentioned that when it comes to pizza, steel may be better for conductivity than a brick oven stone. With that in mind, Lagsen fabricated a quarter inch thick piece of steel and took it home for a test drive. This simple idea has revolutionized pizza making at home, putting restaurant style artisan pies within reach out of a conventional oven. It all comes down to science. The baking steel is able to cook a pizza even more evenly than a stone because it retains its heat. It helps maintain the overall heat of the oven, which means quicker recovery times, and more consistent cooks. The Baking Steel gives you the best control for your bake and lets you finally make the crusts you crave. Learn more about Lagston's story in Episode 7, which covers ovens and equipment, or visit bakingsteel.com and use code Pizza for a 10% discount on a Baking Steel of your own. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel. This is episode eight, We Bought the Pizza Farm, the thick and thin of American pizza styles. Along with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza, we will chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its story past and are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. Don't worry, we'll address the elephant in the room. Why does Modernist Cuisine think Portland, Oregon is the pizza capital of the United States? Francisco will make this abundantly clear. We'll also clarify California-style pizza, do a deep dive into Chicago's pizza allegiances, get our frico on with Detroit's cheesy crust, and drive a 250-mile stretch of highway along the Mississippi River to visit seasonal pizza farms in Wisconsin. We'll also cross bridges and tunnels to find out why the best pizza in the Tri-State area may be from New Jersey, and how Mystic, Connecticut, a seaport town that came to fame in the late 1980s for a pizza-themed movie, now has an umami-packed pie of its own.
4: I need to make a huge clarification here. There is fantastic pizza in Portland. I mean, there's no denying that. But when you look at how many great pizzerias there are with the population in Portland, the amount of great pizzerias they have for the amount of people that live in Portland, it could make it the greatest pizza city in the United States because you have more great pizza available to you. If you, I think there's 650,000 people that live in Portland. And you have you know numerous fantastic pizzas where if you go to New York City, there's 8 million people that live there. And the amount of pizzerias that are excellent—they don't match up on a per capita basis. So I really wanted to make that clarification, but also, you know, I wanted to give Portland its due. With you know, people are really doing some really good pizza there. I want to add one more thing about that, and that this is also very important to remark is that the people who came out in anger <laughs> out of out of this comment, which first of all to me is kind of funny because it's just pizza. Relax. But also, the fact is that I will guarantee that the people that came out against this have probably not been to Portland, or St. Louis, or Detroit, or anywhere else but the pizza that they grew up with. I think it's safe to say that we traveled the world and tasted a whole lot of pizzas. So I think that that allows us to at least have an opinion, an informed opinion that is based on actually tasting a whole bunch of different pizzas in a whole bunch of different parts of the world. If you're just saying, no, it's just New York because I'm from New York and that's how it's supposed to be, then that is absurd. That, that doesn't hold any water. And if you're angry, I'm sorry, cry more. But that's, that's, that is how you made that decision. Our decision was based on actual research. This goes back to what we posit in episode one, that pizza is subjective, but it's also
3: empirical. This is why we can enjoy the value of pizza in New Haven, Connecticut, known for its thin crust and coal fires, which modernist cuisine thinks is most akin to old-world Neapolitan pies, but not necessarily the best modern example of pizza. Nathan and Francisco explain.
5: Most cities in the United States who got Italian immigrants got Italian immigrants from Naples, but they also got them from northern Italy and Sicily and so forth. It happens that a guy named Sargent, who was a big industrialist, people might remember the Sargent Lock Company was the sort of last surviving part of his empire well into my lifetime anyway. Well, this Sargent was a big industrialist in New Haven, and he marries an Italian woman from Naples. And she says, look, we should get Neapolitans because they're harder workers and so forth. So Sargent had a tout with a sandwich board at Ellis Island. And when boats would come in from Italy, they would call out in Neapolitan dialect saying, hey, come with us. We have this Neapolitan community. As a result, the Italian-American community in New Haven was almost exclusively Neapolitan. And you can see this today in the fact that they don't use the word pizza. Instead, they use a pizza run together, which is pronounced a beat. Neapolitan dialect slang. It's not closest to Neapolitan style now. I think it is closest to the pizza that came over in the 19th century. So... Regardless of where in the world, 19th century pizza is not the same as 20th or late 20th century because the flour was very different. And a lot of the other ingredients were different too. Tastes were different. Today, a Neapolitan pizza has to have a fluffy cornicione. That's part of the deal. If it had a thick, dense, hard, flat rim, they'd throw it out in Naples
4: it actually maintained what those pizzas look like throughout the ages. It may have had some, you know, a few changes here and there, but what it looks like now is what we see pizzas used to look like. You have larger bubbles and, you know, they're going from, you know, nicely brown to like black, basically burnt. And some people have acquired a taste for that. And uh, it's it's something that people feel very connected and close to with, with that particular style of pizza. And people who like New Haven will, you know, that, that's their, the team that they play for and it's it's the best pizza in the, in the country. So it's almost blasphemy to say that it's that it's not. But, you know, I, I think that the, the wonderful thing about pizza is that if you don't want to have New Haven, you don't have to have it. <laughs> and if you only want to have New Haven, then just have New Haven. But something must have changed. Why else would pizza have so
3: many regional styles if there weren't mutations? Isn't America the land of opportunity? The land of the free, the land of Old Forge, Pennsylvania and Lackawanna County, a town of 9,000 people, which considers itself the pizza capital of the world, where a whole rectangular pan pizza is not called a pie, but a tray, and there are no slices, just cuts. There's also Quad Cities, a region of five cities in two states, Iowa and Illinois, defined by its spicy sauce and non-uniform cut strips. Old Forge has been around for a hundred years, whereas Quad Cities has been making pies since the 1950s. You can read more about these places in Modernist Pizza the Book, or you can visit them for yourself. But it was Portland, Oregon that intrigued us the most when it came to Pizza Today. Sarah Minnick of Lovely's 50-50 helps put PDX on the map. How would you define Portland's food scene right now?
1: I think
6: it's really excellent. Every time I travel, I think I realize that, you know, we have it really, really lucky here because there's just so many people down in the service line of things in their own restaurants, working and cooking in their own restaurants, chef owners. And there's not that many restaurants where that's not the case, where there's like a big investor and there's like a restaurant group and they have, you know, hiring chefs and going through them it's there really is a lot of personal touch on a lot of restaurants here and so I think I've seen that my whole life and was really drawn and inspired by that just even by like simple coffee shops in my teens that I saw the owners working at and really putting their own like you know stamp on things and having it be they are they're professionally run but there is just also that feeling of, you know, a small locally owned business is run by a family that's really hard to beat, I think.
3: Can you paint the picture of where you're located, how fertile an area, Portland, Oregon and surroundings are?
6: Yeah, we're really lucky that we just live in a pretty moderate climate for farming. And so, you know, in Portland, we have year long farmers markets, and almost all of our farmers at this point deliver all winter besides maybe one week for Christmas or something like the holidays, there's just not a lot of snow, and there's not a lot of even freezing temperatures usually, so we're just really lucky to be in the in that zone. I am really influenced by the farmers that I work with, and those Ostiana tomatoes come from a farm here called Airs Creek Farm, and it's owned by Anthony and Carol Bertard, and they they actually are unique in that they breed their own seeds they got the seeds for those in italy and i think it's been like 15 years they've grown those out every single year and then they take the very best specimens and they actually eat them too for flavor and texture and just like shape and things like that and they just keep honing and honing and honing their seed selection to be making the perfect fruit so that one is a really good example of like just the kind of excellence that we get to work with and you know even though we have all these produce all year, we don't have tomatoes and we don't have summer produce. They're not growing like hothouse things. So in the winter, it does get pretty minimal. We're taking down to like, you know, radishes and Brussels sprouts and chicories. And there's definitely no tomatoes or any summer crops. So at Lovelies, we really, I, I work on really hard on preserving things so that will have a more diverse menu in the winter months. And it's not just kale and cabbage. We have uh, nettles, which is one of my personal favorites. Probably can just think of five or six different wild mushrooms that we work with. And I have a forager that actually just lives right across the river in outside of Vancouver, Washington, and I get most of my mushrooms from him.
3: When you build your menu, are you thinking from a flavor profile or aesthetic sense?
6: I think, first of all, like one of my favorite things to do is just go to the farmer's market. There's all little farmers. They don't deliver to restaurants, so you really need to go pick them up. My first thing to do is just make a lap and see what's around. I love beautiful ingredients and I think usually, you know, if something's beautiful, it usually does correspond to being delicious also, so I sort of look for those two qualities. And I think as far as pizza goes, it's a nice medium for cooking because you can be simple, but you can also just infuse five different cheeses, five different greens, you know, all different mushrooms. And so you can end up getting a pretty different set of pizzas on the menu, which is nice. And it's not necessarily that I go out and look for anything strange, but I'm definitely going out and looking for things that farmers like and they like to grow because those are usually the things that are interesting and they grow well. And it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. If I can get what they like growing and things that grow well, they're usually great for pizza.
3: What are some of the more unexpected pizza combinations that you've come up with?
6: You know, it's funny. I think I did like when I first really started to enjoy the process of making pizza I really did push it as far as putting like you know maybe like pureeing different beans and using them instead of cheese or just as a topping instead of sauce as a base and I've gone through tons of different just fresh toppings on pizza like watercress and different sorts of like horseradish cream like things you put on after the pizza's baked I think those are usually pretty exciting to me too but I mean most things will comply for pizza. I love putting nettles or greens that are maybe bitter and just working with sweeter cheeses to like complement them and bring out their different flavors and you know it is the old adage of if it grows together it goes together. is <laughs> a pretty good one. It sounds limited, but it's actually a really good guideline for putting things together.
3: Yeah, not not to sound gaudy about this, but I mean why flowers on the pizza?
6: I think I have a pretty close connection with flowers. I have a pretty big garden, and the original owner of it was from Poland, and she had all kinds of flowers growing in there, and she didn't speak a lot of English, but I still see them grow up in the yard, and I pick a lot of our flowers that go on pizzas, and it's really just on a few specific pizzas in the summertime that I make sort of a big flower confetti, and I put them on there because they're just so beautiful. I can't resist them. And since we have an open kitchen at Lovely's, I really love just making the most beautiful, delicious pizzas we can and sending them out to tables and having people just be like, oh my God, wow, that's beautiful, you know? And it's not just that they're beautiful, they're delicious. The whole thing is a complete package for me.
3: Do you ever feel like you toe the line of your pizza not being pizza, it being something else?
6: It's definitely pizza, I think, for sure. I find a bond with other pizza makers. I think that even though it's a little different, it is 100% American pizza, you know, it's it, it qualifies.
3: Ken Forkish's book, The Elements of Pizza, is a favorite of both my father-in-law and brother-in-law. Ken's artisan pizza in Southeast has been a favorite of Portlanders since 2006. And although Fork has just retired, selling his business to employees, his pizza legacy in Portland will be perpetuated, although he grew up on Maryland-style pies.
7: I grew up in Hyattsville, Maryland.
3: That's suburban Washington,
7: D.C. The pizza that was significant for me in my childhood uh, was Lido's Pizza.
3: I only recently learned about this Maryland-style pizza. Can you explain what it is?
7: The crust had fat in it because the crust was a little bit flaky. And the fat would, I'm guessing, was originally lard um, and probably, also guessing, migrated to shortening. That's the only pizza I've ever had that had fat in the dough intentionally, you know, except for maybe a little bit of olive oil, but that had a flaky kind of a pastry-like dough. The other parts of the Lido pizza where it was um, moderate to moderate heavy with sauce, because it was a pan pizza, you could load it up, you know, the, the crust wasn't super thick, maybe like a quarter inch at max. It was far from a deep dish. And the sauce was just a little bit sweet. They cut it into squares. And their tagline was, because we don't cut corners.
3: And I read descriptors like long fermented dough, hand-stretched mozzarella, Italian tomatoes. What is inherently Portland, Oregon about that? Focus on ingredients and ingredient quality.
7: There's many of us that make different styles of pizza, but that's a commonality, whether it's Brian or Sarah or me or Scotty or Tommy Habits. I can speak for all of us. We're buying the ingredients that we think makes the best pizza of the style we're making that we can buy and then figuring out what we have to charge to make a profit. Ken's Artisan Pizza operates as a full-service restaurant. It's not just a pizzeria, uh, which occupies a certain class of restaurant in people's minds. you know. We're very well focused on having a deep wine list, a uh, really good cocktail program, high quality bartenders. The entire experience is something that we pay attention to there. The pizza oven, we have a wood-fired oven that's in the middle of the restaurant. You can see the fire burning from the street and it just really defines the food that come, is coming out of our kitchen. Everything comes out of the, uh, the wood-fired oven and the people are working right in front of you to make your food. I've always just loved neighborhood restaurants that just give you a great experience, whether or not they've been written up in the top 20 list for your town or you just like being there, you know? And that's kind of what we've always wanted to be is that kind of neighborhood restaurant that gets a lot of repeat offenders, you know? Um, But then people from other parts of town and now we get people from other parts of the country. Uh, We get a really nice mix. I like seeing a broad demographic element inside the restaurant. Uh, We have a lot of kids that are now adults that grew up eating our pizza. And that's really super cool. We've had people who've lost their spouses and come back to sit at the same table just to remember the times they had. And that kind of thing is very, very special. And it's been the same at my bakery and at my pizzeria is developing a lot of regular repeat business. And it turns into a community place where you know, a number of our guests will recognize other guests and strike out conversations while they're in the restaurant.
3: What drew you to Portland in the first place?
7: This was a career change for me. I had 20 years in tech and I was based in California and then back in D.C. and back in California. I could have done it anywhere in the country. I was evaluating places all over the West Coast and in the Rocky Mountains and even back East in Maryland and up in Massachusetts. So I did like a year-long search with a lot of visits. And finally, Portland was my choice for a whole lot of reasons that just kind of came together. I wanted to be... Somewhere that had um, a strong viticultural community, the Oregon wine industry was in its early days, but it clearly had legs, you know, um, and boy, has it grown. It was a good enough size of a city that it could have the cultural elements that I wanted to be part of. It's a fairly young town. It has a lot of youth in it. And when I opened my bakery in 2001, it was very affordable. It's changed. It's a much more expensive town than it was 20 years ago. Uh, but no regrets. I'm really happy that it's, it's been cool to be part
3: of Portland's growing food and drink scene for these last 20 years. Kathy Wims Nostrana won the Oregonian's Restaurant of the Year in 2006. Though her love affair with rustic Italian cuisine has existed even longer than the restaurant itself, whereas thin crust pizzas bring people in, Wims believes it's the romance that kept her wood fire alive.
8: Nostrana means ours in Italian, as in yours and mine, but it has this deeper meaning. It means what's from the very place where you're from. And so if you're in the markets in Italy and you are looking at, let's just say, produce, but it could be fish, it could be poultry, it could be anything. Food-wise, if by law has to say where the provenance of the actual vegetable or the chicken or the fish are from. And so for us, it seemed like the perfect name because we were really dedicated to buying as local as possible.
3: Your career is kind of legendary when it comes to Italian cuisine. So just trying to get a sense of all the amazing people that you studied with, from Marcella and Victor Hazan at their home in Venice, um, Madeline Kamen, Giancinto there are so many different parts of Italy and you've cooked so many different styles of Italian cuisine. What eventually led you to pizza?
8: Oh, that's a good question. It goes way back to my childhood. <laughs> I've always thought that pizza was one of the most romantic foods and also one of the foods that makes most people really happy. I remember when I was probably in like third and fourth grade in, um I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and there was a restaurant called this is the funniest name in the world, La Pizza. And we would go there and eat like on Friday nights or Saturday nights, you know, as a celebration. And it was the goofy kind of Italian restaurant that I love that had like fake grapes on the ceiling and, you know, the, the candles in the wrapped Chianti bottles and everything. And for me, it was just I think that was sort of started my affection for Italian food. And so I always loved pizza. I was always searching out the best pizza whenever I traveled and also in my hometown. And I was really unhappy with the pizza offerings for the most part in Portland, Oregon. And I think this would be, you know, I think around 2003 or so. And I always wanted to open a pizzeria. I had gone from fine dining, and I thought, this is what I want to do next. And the more and more I traveled to Italy, the simpler food is what I became to appreciate the most, and pizza certainly fell into that category. Two other great pizzerias, at least, opened in Portland, and one was Ken's Artisan Pizza, and one was a Pizza Shoals. And they actually, Ken himself, like, let me work at his pizzeria when they were just doing their practice runs and stuff,
3: the calamari or the funghi verde, uh, where do those come from? The inspirations.
8: The, it comes from our cooks and what's in season and what's available. So the calamari is that sort of seafood version of a marinara pizza, which by its very name, sort of you know has the word "mare" sea in the name. I love marinara pizza almost more than any pizza, which is hard to say because I love margarita. But I love the simplicity of just the tomato sauce on the pizza with whatever flavorings. And the simplest, in our case, is garlic and oregano and olive oil. And Because you can really taste the crust and the quality of the dough and the taste of the sweetness of the wheat. So we also like to take that template and then add different kinds of seafood to it like octopus and calamari or steam mussels and clams on top of the pizza in the wood-burning oven and they open up and the juices go into the tomato sauce and it all kind of all becomes this wonderful one thing kind of like spaghetti with clam sauce another one of my most romantic flavor italian dishes
3: whims collaborates on another pizza venture oven and shaker with mixologist Ryan Magarin, whose quaffable cocktails are paired with more unconventional toppings. The pizza scene in Portland keeps growing, too. Joshua McFadden of Ava Jean's fame opened Chicoria, while an alum of Ava Jean's opened up Cafe Oli in the old Ned Ludd space. That's not to mention all the other amazing pizzerias that already existed. But when it comes to the West Coast, there's no denying that California-style pies have influenced even PDX. You may have heard of the chain California Pizza Kitchen, right? Nathan elaborates.
5: There were a number of restaurants, but particularly two, Chez and Spago in California. And those two helped shape what people would call California cuisine. It was very simple. Uh, Alice Waters put in a pizza oven, but they never made traditional Neapolitan pizza. She did with... The pizza, what she did with her interpretations of sort of a French and Provençal kind of food, which is take some inspiration from the French, but also take great American ingredients and some American culinary traditions and make her own mashup. And it was very successful. It caused a Wolfgang Puck to hire the pizzolo that she had from Chez Panisse to come set up pizza for him. And he took it even further, you know, making a smoked salmon and caviar pizza or a duck pizza or a barbecue chicken pizza, which then became super popular among trendy people in Los Angeles. And from there, that was enormously influential. California was a melting pot of different culinary traditions. Alice Waters, you know, named her restaurant for a Provencal dish, which is French, but very near Italy, but often hired Italians as her head chef or had Italians in the kitchen. But her exploration of saying, can we borrow from great techniques of Europe, but put an American twist was great. And I I think that Amusingly, in Italy right now, in the, the north of Italy, in Verona, there's a new style of pizza that is growing called pizza gourmet. And it's got a lot of commonalities with what Wolfgang did at Spago in that it's a, they put smoked salmon on pizza also, and they put uh, other things on pizza that are highly non-traditional as pizza, but would be more traditional for a high-end dining experience. Now, I've quizzed the Italian pizzolos who are behind that movement, and they claim to have never heard of Spago or Wolfgang Puck, and it may well be true. But I think the general license to say, hey, we can put anything on a pizza so long as it's delicious, was a very California cuisine idea.
3: Ed Ledoux may have been the chef who helped establish California's style, but there have been many more pizziolo in California who have had a similar effect. Anthony Tassanello, a second-generation Italian-American, originally from New Jersey, cooked professionally in New York City before living in Italy. He found pizza to be widespread in his life until arriving in East Bay. That move helped him hone in his signature style as he writes in his book, The Essential Woodfire Pizza Cookbook.
9: When I moved to the Bay Area in mid-90s, there were a couple things that everybody sort of said. There's no good pizza here and there's no good bagels. And the only two places that I could find good pizza were at Chez Panisse upstairs in the cafe from the wood oven. And there was also a wood oven at uh, an Italian restaurant in Oakland called Olivetto. And former chef Paul Bertoli from Chez Panisse went over to Olivetto and started his own movement there. And so I kind of feel like, yeah, California pizza, as I saw it, were those two examples. And then from there, it started to expand very quickly to places like Craigstoll's, Delfina in San Francisco, and a host of other places. And those pizzas had ingredients that were farm-based ingredients and very seasonal. You know, Wolfgang Puck putting salmon and caviar on and pizza, and, and that seems like such a Californian thing to do. I don't know what it, Italians would have thought about that at that time, if it was sort of blasphemy or if it was heretical or something, but it obviously was breaking new ground. And, you know, I think that's part of the ethos here. There's We're not stuck in one spot. We're willing to take chances with our food and we're willing to explore different flavors and and use different things on pizzas that maybe wouldn't have made sense even 10 years ago. Figs and fruit and foie gras and seafood and different types of charcuterie. I like the style of pizza where you make maybe just a basic pie and then you can dress a little salad and put on top of it. It just is a fun contrast to a traditional hot pizza. So I like that marriage of sort of hot and cold and you can make something acidic, say like a bright lemony chicory salad with, with something, you know, maybe some nuts or something in it on top of a little warm fontina pie beneath it. And you kind of get this combination effect that's better than each one of those individual things.
3: I feel like the vegetable pizza section in your book is more apropos to what maybe California cuisine is, at least on a pizza, with your asparagus and fava bean pizza with tapenade or the squash and squash blossom pizza with cherry tomatoes. What is it about vegetarian cuisine or, or the stunning California produce like that that makes those pizzas more Californian?
9: I think we as Californians maybe more so than other places. We love to eat with our eyes. I mean, our produce is so beautiful. And sometimes you're creating these dishes, these pizzas, and they're visual as well as delicious. And so you're looking at your mise en place in front of you and you're trying to create something that's like a little canvas and you're building these different flavors, but you're also considering colors and uh, shapes and how those things cook in the oven. You know, Do I cook them before they go in the oven? Do I par cook them? How does it react if it goes in raw? And so, for example, that asparagus pie, I like to shave long lengthwise slivers of spears on a mandolin and then dress them very lightly and then scatter them over the pie almost like a, a mosaic in a way. So I feel like some of those things are visual with the underlying theme that you want it to be delicious. A day's drive
3: down State Route 1, you'll end up in Los Angeles, home to Nancy Silverton's Pizzeria Mozza, which has been pulling some of the best fresh mozzarella since 2007, and become the criterion for pizza on the West Coast. A few years back, Silverton co-opened Triple Beam with ex-Mozza chef Matt Molina, serving Roman-style slices, adding to the recent pizza boom of L.A., This includes places like Jelena, Hail Mary, Ronin, and Superfine. Not to mention Polonia's picturesque Detroit-style pies. The late great Jonathan Gold even called Daniele Udidi's neo-Neapolitan pizzas at Pizzana the best in the world. So why did Brandon Gray, an ex-Navy cook gone fine dining, decide that he too needed to add to L.A.'s pizza prowess, under the pseudonym Brandoni Pepperoni,
10: a bespoke pickup only pie, in Faircrest Heights? Cooking for about 500 people between 4 a.m. and 1 a.m. So there's breakfast, there's lunch, there's dinner. Even at 10 o'clock, there's a meal called Midrats. So it's the people who slept throughout most of those um, breakfast, lunch, and dinners, and they have food because they're doing the evening shifts. So there's food for them at those hours. You know, there's many jobs That a chef can have in the military. I cooked for the officers for about two years. So, you know, that's cooking for the highest ranking people on the boat. You know, there was a a high school friend of mine who called and asked if I knew how to make deep dish pizza. I lied and, of course, said, I do. Shortly after that phone conversation, I called my best friend and she was like, look, like I haven't eaten all day. Can you make me a pizza as well? And I was just like, wait a minute, like, is this, is this a thing? And she said, why not? And from there, Brandoni's is history, you know? So it all started off kind of as a joke for me. I had no intentions of doing pizza. Like every month I was going to do something culinary, like different. So it was going to be rice bowls, uh, sushi, just to sort of kind of like keep things interesting for me. But, you know, jokes on me is I've been doing a pizza for about a year and a half now. I think working in all of these like high caliber restaurants, you know, one of the th- main focuses was the product. You never sacrifice on the product. Other places around the world don't have the bounty of produce that California has year wide. You know, like I think for most parts of the country you know tomato season is sort of kind of like a springtime thing and maybe transitions out in september definitely october you'll never find uh, tomatoes but here in california like we'll have them up into springtime so just as you know one farmer's ending their crop around february march then other places are starting their uh tomato harvest so you know i just think it's one of those luxuries of living in california where you'll always just have a bigger variety than places in the in the middle of the states you know the crazy part is right now at the farmers market there's at least like 5 6 different vendors who have heirloom tomatoes but moonak farm is hands down the best tomatoes that i've had and you know for each born and raised pizza it's not just one tomato it's you know, the canned Bianco Napoli's that I use for the sauce. And I use a combination of their green zebras, their pineapple tomatoes, their celebrity tomatoes, their sun-dried tomatoes, and their black brandy. So that's like five different varieties of tomatoes on a traditional marguerite pizza, but then even using like five to six different types of basils as well. So again, I think you look at the pizzas that I have on my menu, they're all just interpretations of what people have already eaten like a million times, but just done my way, you know?
3: But they're not just remixes. They're fresh takes on old beats, telling stories
10: of what's really going on in the streets. So if you look at the menu, all the titles of the pizzas are actually West Coast hip-hop artists and or California artists, Californication being the only song that is not a hip-hop song. Like I'm born and raised California or born and raised L.A. I, I grew up like where I currently live, um, where I sell pizzas is three blocks away from my original high school, two and a half blocks away from the high school that I graduated. I live four miles away from my mom. Like I've lived in pretty much like a, a 10 mile bubble growing up my entire life in L.A. So I wanted to keep everything sort of California, whether it was the names of the pizzas, the produce. The flour comes from California as well. So, you know, it's just I wanted someone to sort of look at the business itself and say, oh, no, this is definitely California cuisine.
3: Brandoni Pepperoni is trying to find a brick and mortar in L.A., but in the meantime, makes pizzas for pickup every day from 4 to 8 p.m. Except Wednesday. Order online to see what pizza masterpieces are on track for that day. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. For most people, one of the most frustrating things about making pizza at home is that you can have the best flour, tomato, and cheese at hand, and yet you still have to put up with the constraints of a conventional oven. Uni makes it possible to make a true, bubbly, chewy, Neapolitan-style pie at home. For nearly a decade, Uni's portable pizza ovens have been the gold standard for getting that perfectly blistered crust because they're able to heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, doubling the capabilities of the usual home oven. Want that wood fire scent? Well, you can have it. Or the convenience of gas. Or use the same charcoal you use for your grill. Uni Karu 16 multi-fuel Oven gives you all three fuel options. And because it gets so hot, it's possible to fire out those pizzas in 60 seconds with minimal recharge time. Once your neighbors catch on, you'll be hosting pizza parties in your backyard every week. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernistpodcast. That's O-O-N-I dot com backslash modernistpodcast. What is a pizza farm? Well, those on the west side of Wisconsin along a 250-mile strip road that passes through 33 river towns along the Mississippi, no. What started at A to Z Produce and Bakery in Stockholm, Wisconsin in the late 90s became a movement among small farms. they build wood-fire ovens and on weekends they make pizzas for CSA members. That idea expanded, and these so-called pizza farms have become fixtures in this area. There are dozens of them now. But pizzas don't grow on trees, you know. Tell that to Maria Bamante and Tommy Holden of Dancing Yarrow in Mondovi, 20 minutes east of Eau Claire. They bought a farm from a long-time resident, Dennis Anderson, a few years ago, and have since fed the community with pizza, permaculture, and live music.
11: We moved here about 10 years ago, and then six years ago, Dennis's wife at the time and him had started at this awesome place they opened it up to the public first to weddings and then they started the pizza nights and then it just kind of grew and we used to come all the time and we spend a lot of time here because it's just a magical place. So dancing yarrow, uh, that was the name that was given to this property. That's something that's very important to us in love. Um, and yarrow is an ancient herb of healing. So that's really what we try to do here is focus on love and connection and healing. Food is healing in my mind. Gathering around food is very healing in my mind. Bringing together community around pizza. My passion is raw food, food as medicine. So we're actually, I'm getting my raw chef certification. So, as we move forward i would love to incorporate more of that for next year that's kind of really what i've been working on is figuring out how we can incorporate that in like this sly sneaky little way getting people to understand how powerful food can be for your overall health without them knowing it so heating something over a certain temperature for a certain amount of time takes out like the enzymes and all the natural goodness so we leave our vegetables raw and then they're cooked in our 900 degree oven for like a minute And so they can retain all of their goodness and they're still delicious and crunchy.
12: I think I was cooking pizzas three years prior to owning it. Um, Yeah, yeah. So I've been at this oven for quite a long time. Oh, we're close. (laughs) Yeah, we're very close. Uh, Yeah, this thing sometimes has a mind of its own, as you know. Um, Some days I struggle keeping the temperature up and some days... I mean, you throw a pizza in there and it's done in 40 seconds, 50 seconds, it's, it's, it's insane. I learned from Dennis tricks on how to just get my courage up and to be able to work with oven and now it's more listening to how it reacts, listening to how things go. I used to be super strict on the timing of the pizzas, always constantly watching that clock and now. It's more of a feeling. You just kind of know when things are done. That feeling is parallel to how
3: permaculture works, watching how nature behaves and using those prompts as guiding principles.
12: Because as much as this is about pizza,
3: dancing yarrow is a farm after all.
12: The food that we serve here that we grow on this farm is mineral rich food. We don't use fertilizers on this land and we also don't use any form of pesticides on this land either pesticides herbicides fungicides none of it um this is organic land the bees the garlic um the pizza the restaurant yoga just all the little things that happen at this farm we're so busy that I, i really don't have time to really enjoy what is really here it would be nice you know but I'm a person who, me and my wife are people who are shepherds of this property, and we are just making sure that it's um, good for everybody else to have fun. This is truly plant-based pizza. The
3: blame. You just heard a snippet of Broken Man by the Rock Creek Song Dogs, who often run the open mic nights at Dancing Yarrow. Up in Prescott, Wisconsin, just across the river from Minneapolis, Diane Webster bought a farm over a decade ago with no real pizza intentions. Emily Belzer, who has managed the farm since 2011, has helped see it come to its pizza and farm fruition. Uh, my
13: husband and I were looking for... Um Homes, we were engaged in looking for homes between Lake City, Minnesota and Roseville, Minnesota, and uh, we were looking on everything Minnesota, and then one day we wanted donuts, so we decided to see what was on the other side of the river, (laughs) and we found donuts and a real estate office. That's actually how we
8: ended up in Prescott. I went to college for writing, but I decided I wanted to take an internship in farming after college first. Um, And of course, here I am 10 years later.
13: (laughs) When I first started to talk with her about the possibility of just starting a little community garden um, behind the farmhouse, I had really no other aspirations than that. Um, I just thought to have a farm in the middle of town was really something special and it should be preserved. We're probably, what, a quarter to a half mile from the river, from both rivers, the Mississippi and the St. Croix. We're a half a block from the fire hall as the crow flies, probably two blocks from City Hall in the opposite direction of the fire hall. So we're surrounded by the community.
3: Webster and Belzer had to reestablish the land, enriching the soil with agriculture to revive its prosperous past.
8: Well, we have a lot of tomatoes, a lot of different types of tomatoes growing in the garden right now. We have several types of zucchini, several types of eggplant, including Chinese string eggplant, which I'm really excited about this year, and lots of peppers, sweet peppers, hot peppers, um, daikon radish, carrots, like five different kinds of beets, several kinds of kale, collard greens, Swiss chard, lots of herbs, lots of lettuces, we had... Three different kinds of radicchio and some escarole, strawberries, winter squash.
3: Of all the produce, the majority makes it onto pizza. Daikon radishes, kohlrabi, and carrots may be the outliers. But as for tomatoes, they all get used. Those that aren't perfect are frozen and made into sauce during the winter time. The secret to their sauce is that these tomatoes were never intended for pizza. Webster bought the farm before any thought of a pizza night. She had to figure out how to pay for it.
13: So we were, had, we had people keeping their eyes open for grants and things. And, um, a friend sent me an email one morning and said, um, I think this is a grant that you guys might be able to get. Why don't you take a look? So I, I was at home, which was six blocks away from the farm. We didn't own own the farmhouse at the time. Emily lived at my home too. I came up to the farm to tell Emily about this grant opportunity. Um, and after I explained it to her, uh, i told her the the problem with this grant is that we have to have it turned the application turned in by two o'clock today and we had to come up with a repeatable event that we could um, do three repeats before the end of the season and it had to have to do with bringing community together it was a grant put out by the Alina clinic so i told emily about that and of course true to character she said well let's do it so we went home back to my house sat sat at the table and she typed and we talked and we came up with the the whole pizza night plan
8: and then we got the grant and then yeah
13: and then we and then we got the grant for $1,700 to build a pizza oven and um, realized that that was not enough to even pay for the materials so it was quite a scramble but we did manage to bring a pizza um, oven over from the other side of the Twin Cities. Took was a 13-hour project, but we did it. Um, brought it over, rolled it off the truck, weighed about 5,000 pounds. So once it got off the truck, that's where it had to stay.
3: <laughs> and with that, Pizza Nights were here to stay. The events were way more popular and such a significant source of financial support for the farm that the farm now supported Pizza Night. Heather Seacrest runs Suncrest Gardens in Cochrane, Wisconsin, nestled between the bluffs and the river. She too never saw pizza being the primary purpose of her farm, but it's certainly become the main attraction.
14: We've been growing vegetables and the meats and all those things for 18 years, but the pizza restaurant side has been going for 16 years. Pizzas were a way to use what we grew on the farm in market those farm grown items because I wanted to farm. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to raise food for people like good food, clean food. I grew up on a dairy farm, so we were raising cows and producing a milk that went to people, but you never had that connection and that relationship with the food, you know, as you do with just direct to the consumer this way. It is like having two full time businesses at once. So the juggling act becomes pretty challenging at peak seasons and when they both sort of peak at the same time of year and so while the gardens are in peak production we're also processing as much as we can and preserving that crop for next year's pizza season so you know it's like canning preserving for yourself but amped up on a huge way you know so we're roasting hundreds of pounds of onions right now through the oven and then freezing them so that crop is available for us all next year until the next crop we grow is ready to come in and that goes for the carrots the garlic the corn we just froze this last week as well so all of those things the sweet roasted peppers are done so it's kind of a year you know planning in advance and trying to okay is the restaurant pushing the garden to produce more is the garden producing the restaurant to get more creative you know it's this kind of balance that goes back and forth we have a good space to play for kids and activities and they can feel pretty safe here you know on the farm and yet everyone can kind of i don't know take a step back from their cell phones and all the busyness and all of that kind of stuff because there's no cell service here And just sort of chill and have a couple hour experience at the farm, not just a fast food dining out. We don't say we have a petting zoo because that is not. We have animals out on pasture in their settings and where they live and are raised and stuff. So people can take a walk out and go visit the pigs. There's the sheep out in the pasture there. We have chickens, ducks, etc. and stuff. So there's animals to see and visit, but not necessarily like a petting zoo. Yeah, it's a real farm. (laughs) It probably took a good 10 years, you know, really, of figuring it all out and getting the word to spread slowly. And it was important that it spread slowly, too, because I had a lot to learn. I wasn't a restaurant, you know, owner. I knew I liked food and I knew I liked growing food. But then how to have systems and places, you know, for producing 200 pizzas on a night in a timely fashion that's a whole nother layer of processes and knowledge and things to kind of get under your belt. And so when customers have come back that had little kids that came to the farm like 16 years ago and now they come back now, like they're so blown away.
3: Pizza farms feel as fleeting as summer does to some folk. But for Marcy and Matt Smith, their summer jobs became their year round lives. They bought the stone barn in Nelson, Wisconsin in 2016 after two years of working there as employees. A 50-by-100-foot barn that collapsed in the 1980s, leaving only the Stonewall Foundation, was restored a decade later. Since then, in the 21st century, from mid-May to mid-October, hundreds of pizzas are made here every day, surrounded by cornfields and lawn games like Kube, as well as everlasting memories in this pizza field of dreams.
15: So it's Pam Taylor is the original owner. She started, or she lived out here since the 1990s. And for, so for about 26 years, she um, had the vision of doing a pizza place out, you know, at our property, which at the time, everyone kind of thought she was crazy. My brother lived out here and we came and he's like, yeah, there's this pizza place out by where I live. And I said, way out there? You know, like I lived in Eau Claire at the time thinking like this, there can't be a restaurant by you. Like you live in the middle of nowhere. And then here we came out here and. Just enjoyed the pizza, and I guess it's history after that. But. <laughs> yeah, so my husband and I uh, started working out here and worked out here. Oh, gosh, it must have been, I think, the summer of 2014. Yeah, it was the summer of 2014, and worked out here for a couple years. The previous owner, Pam, um, had ended up having a bad injury, fell off a ladder, and had a bad injury on her shoulder, so she had a hard time even topping pizzas. They were close to retirement age and didn't have kids of their own. We just loved it out here. My husband and I just Um, we, you know, they kind of had talked about selling it and we were, you know, really interested, but didn't know how we were going to make that happen. Um, but we were like, we can't see this go to anybody else. We just love it so much. We got to figure out a way to make this happen. And then, um, thankfully his sister and her wife, they were financially able to, you know, help us out and get invested in the business that way. So my husband and I were both in education. Um, retired early to just do the business and focus on the business. So he actually just had his last year of teaching. So then he is done now um, as of, you know, pretty recently. And then I'm a school counselor, pre-K-12 school counselor in Pepin, which is close by. So we get to know some of our students there. And um, we have quite a few of our, our own students from Pepin working here, but then we have other students from the neighboring communities of Elma, Andran, Mondovi working here as well. So it gets a little bit hard. Like, this is a Friday that we were kind of short-staffed because high school sports have started. Our college kids are still available, but then high school, it's pretty slim on Fridays. So
3: (laughs) Last October, in surprising 70-degree weather, they made 354 pizzas all day. The fall colors were peaking, and there was the unmistakable orange and yellow views of the bluffs right behind them.
16: So even when you're coming from Eau Claire and the Twin Cities, it's pretty flat. You're kind of in that glaciated region, and all of a sudden it's just rolling hills. So this is the unglaciated regions. region. Glaciers never flattened everything out. And so we just have this really unique, you know, region where you don't get vistas like this anywhere else where you see the rolling hills in the background. And, you know, people come here because of the space and because of the view and to look at the old barn and the, you know, you can get a pizza anywhere. Wisconsin has this tradition of supper clubs where you drive to a hole in the wall in the middle of nowhere Because it's in a beautiful setting and you go there for hours And I kind of consider our pizza place a pizza supper club. It's a destination People don't come here to eat in 10 minutes and leave they come here to stay for hours And so they'll come they'll walk around they'll bring their family. They'll play some soccer They'll walk in the woods you know all that, all those extra things that, that you can do out here that you wouldn't be able to do just at a pizza place in a city.
3: In a certain southwestern hub off of Lake Michigan, Chicagoans feel predisposed to defending their pizza culture. For Steve Dolinsky, the self acclaimed pizza king of Chicago, who's had two books on the subject bi-monthly podcast on pizza and spent the last few years running a pizza tour business in the Windy City. It's more than a job. It's a way of life.
17: I think it's really unfortunate. and It's one of the reasons I actually tackled the Chicago subject in the first place, because I didn't have any preconceived notion. I didn't have any stereotype. No one sort of stood out in front of other pizza forms in Chicago, whereas people from the North Shore, or specifically Lincolnwood, Niles, are strong Lou Malnati's fans. People from Flossmore uh, and Homewood in the south suburbs are big Relios people, and you can't convince them otherwise. And so I didn't have any of those biases coming into this project, which is what made me, I think, ultimately qualified to do a book about Chicago pizza because I wasn't going to play favorites. And people, when they, when they talk about Chicago pizza, man, they are really... It gets weighted in, in one direction, and it really depends on where they grew up eating and what they grew up eating.
3: I love that your thesis is about how Chicago is a thin pizza town. Can can you reiterate why you believe that, and has the past 10 years only strengthened that
17: argument? Most people in Chicago land, and that's Chicago and the suburbs, grew up on thin, tavern-style square-cut pizza. I mean, that's, it's, it's as simple as that. It's been around since the 1920s more 30s, I would say, and then really kicked into high gear around World War II, post-World War II. Um, And that's what people from every part of Chicago, with few exceptions, have as childhood memories. Now, if you grew up in River North downtown in the 40s and 50s, you probably were near Pizzeria Uno and then later Pizzeria Due. And so you might have had Deep Dish. In fact, Larry Aronson, who's now in his mid-80s, grew up in love with that style of deep dish pizza. And he created his own business called My Pie. And it was his version of that pizza that he remembered as a kid, but it was it was a shallower pizza. It wasn't a huge deep dish that we know today. But again, 95% of the people from this region are gonna say tavern style thin square cut pizza is their childhood memory. In fact, it's ubiquitous in Chicagoland. I think it's the one that everybody grows up eating. And so when you say Chicago style pizza, it's, it's a it's a riddle. I mean, is it is it the pizza that most people grew up eating, or is it the pizza that was created in the mid-early 40s that most tourists have come to, uh, uh, I guess, adore or d- deplore?
3: Why has Deep Dish become the export of Chicago more so than Thin Crust?
17: Well, I think because it's a, it was created here. You know, it's our original thing. And I think that people from other cities, other countries, are fascinated by this uh, unique thicker, higher, maybe potentially wider pizza. And over time, it certainly has grown in size. I mean, if you look at old black and whites from the 40s and 50s at Uno's and Due's, it was in a round steel pan that was maybe an inch or two high, but the pizza itself only came up about halfway. It was maybe five eighths of an inch in the middle. But it's a long story again. Alice May Redmond, African-American chef from Mississippi- couldn't get the dough to stretch out, couldn't get it to pan out, added more fat to it. And thus you saw these in the late 60s, early 70s, you saw these pizzas getting heftier and heftier. And that just, I think, spawned more interest and more you know, media coverage and like, oh, look at this pizza. It's so thick. Look at this. You know, There's so much sauce and cheese on it. That is often confused with stuffed pizza, which is a subcategory of deep dish started by guys in 71, popularized by Nancy's, which guys became Nancy's in 74. And Giordano's was also launched in 74 on the South side. They did one step extra. They made a deep dish pizza and then they covered it with another layer of dough, like a thin layer of dough. And then they would place the sauce on top of that. So between these two layers of dough, you had your cheese and your ingredients. And then on the top layer of dough, you would spread the sauce out. That's why you see these two inch high pizzas with the giant cheese poles coming from everybody's Instagram. But what isn't heralded
3: as much on social media is the name Alice May Redmond's and her enduring influence on Chicago-style pizza. Food historian Peter Regis digs deeper.
2: She was an African-American cook in Greenville, Mississippi, and starting sometime in the 1940s, she moved to Chicago and then her family followed her. She was one of the lead cooks at Pizzeria Uno, and the question has always been in Chicago: who is the inventor of deep dish pizza? And we would like to have a definitive. This is the person, and we sort of do. Um, the original owner of Pizzeria Uno at that time in 1943 was a man named Richard Ricardo, and it looks very strong that he was the inventor of the original deep dish pizza. But what's confusing about it and what was little understood until we unearthed some photographs of the pizza in 1949 is the pizza at that time in the early 40s was not that thick and the crust recipe was substantially different than the crust recipe is now. So the question was, how did it change? It looks to be uh, Alice Mae Redman was probably the lead cook at that time and she looks to have changed the recipe and by changed what she did was she put a lot more fat in the dough and by a lot more fat i'm talking uh by an order of four or five times more fat and what she had been familiar with in greenville mississippi was their biscuit recipe that was taught by her mom to her that had a lot of fat in it uh, we're talking if you're using baker's percentage. Up to 30% fat, which is enormous for a pizza. What's interesting about her is she, she skipped from Pizzeria Uno to Pizzeria Due. Then she moonlighted during the night at another deep dish spot in downtown Chicago. They found out about it. They said, you have to choose one. So she left Due. She went to Gino's and then she went from Gino's on Rush Street to Gino's East. And what's interesting about this story is that everywhere she went, if you look closely and you look at the record, the accolades about the pizza sort of followed her, which I could see from maybe one or two, but she went to four different spots. They all, at one degree or another, got some level of substantial recognition as being, if not the best in Chicago, right up there. So I think Chicago has a lot of debt to pay to Alice May Redman. I she lived to be about 94, um, and uh, she just died in uh, November of 2009. Uh, So really an incredible uh, Chicago story of how one cook sort of changed Chicago pizza history.
3: feels like most pizzerias in Chicago are patronymic. I'm just waiting to see an Alice maze open up someday. It's funny. We're going to talk about Detroit style pizza next, a neighboring Midwest style separated by a Great Lake, but we're going to stay in Logan Square for it. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great Detroit-style places in Michigan. I mean, my wife is from there, and we frequent buddies every time we're back. But let's have Nathan and Francisco first define it, and Derek Tong of Pauly G's in Chicago defend his decision to serve Detroit-style in Chi-Town, and his reason for a midlife career shift into restaurants in the first place.
5: The story is that on the assembly lines in Detroit, they would put auto parts, nuts and bolts and screws and things like that in these very, very sturdy metal pans. And that was the pans that they started using for making the pizzas. Well, it turns out eBay is useful for many things, including we managed to buy some original parts pans (laughs) from a Ford factory there originally. And we actually used them. There's a photo in the book that shows them. The Chicago-style deep dish goes nuts for the toppings and makes it a casserole. A large deep dish pizza in Chicago is typically eight pounds when it comes out of the oven, and it gets cut into eight pieces, so it's one pound per piece. It's a chunk of food. Well, Detroit, they decided, okay, let's make the base, the crust, thicker, and then let's put the uh, sauce on top of the cheese. So that's an inversion from the normal practice. But mostly the, the, their key innovation is let's put lots of grated cheese around the edge of the pan in between the crust or the dough, I should say, and the pan. And that's what makes this Frico edge that we've, we've been having.
4: The first image that comes to mind is a rectangular pan, and it's a pan that would is going to provide you with is six slices, typically. What we like about those, especially the corner pieces, because you get two corners that are going to have a crispy crust. And so a rectangular or square pan is going to provide you with that. So would a round pan. When you have a round pan and you take the pizza out, you're going to get a triangle slice that only has like one crispy side, right? which is fine. Not the end of the world. But typically, people will enjoy more of the two crispy sides from a corner than just one
18: back when i was a kid i mean i don't think i differentiated chicago style right like i don't think i started differentiating chicago style till i was in college and that's when there was a giordano's across the street from me on like right across from campus you know, I was an orientation leader, so whenever freshmen would come on board and do like the three night overnight to adjust to campus, we were we took them to Giordanos and they got a chance to like eat quote unquote Chicago style pizza, which now is qualified as like stuffed crust pizza. Um but that's like that's when I first started differentiating pizza into a region or a city in some sort, I think. My parents, my sister, My wife's parents and sister all live in the Chicago area. We've got cousins in the Chicago area. So there's just never been a huge impetus to move. We're both very, very family oriented people, right? Like we like to see our parents at least once to twice a week when we can and spend time with them um, and just spend time as a family. So I am Chinese American. I was born and raised to be one of three things, a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. And anything else would be... Basically, a travesty and black sheep of the family. Uh, and I've, I've lived that quite a few times over. You know, I I You're went welcome. to medical school for a little bit and then yeah. left. And I, I left while my parents were in China, so they didn't know about it until they got home. That was uh, not the most courageous moment in my life, but it was the right thing for me to do. Paulie did a mid-career shift, right? I mean, he, he changed out of technology and decided to pursue opening up his own pizzeria. And similarly, you know, I was, I was healthcare background before. I was in um, academic medicine. I was a hospital administrator. I was in eventually healthcare consulting. And then I switched, made the big jump over to opening up my own restaurant, And so, you know, the similar background really is just, like I said, I'm looking for someone that wasn't born and raised making pizza or born and raised in the industry. I want someone that I can relate to a little bit more um, and that had that midlife career change. Uh, I was born and raised in mostly Chicago in the suburbs, like the surrounding suburbs. I haven't really gone very far.
3: Why do you serve Detroit style in the Chicago establishment?
18: Ah, good question. I mean, we don't even serve Chicago style in our Chicago establishment. I served Detroit style because I had buddies for the first time, maybe six and a half years ago and just fell in love with it. Like the first bite was just crispy cheese on the outside, soft tender dough on the inside and all the tomato flavors and toppings on top. It was, it was just so much amazing texture and so much amazing flavor built into one bite. I just, I'd never had pizza like that before in my life. And so that kind of blew me away. And I started making, trying to figure out how to make Detroit pizza at home which eventually led me to introducing it at the restaurant.
3: Why is there no Chinese influence?
18: There is a Chinese influence. It only comes out during Chinese New Year's though. Yeah. Um, So, you know, typically it's either, it'll be either January or February or March, depending on when Chinese New Year's falls each year. We do a pizza that has Chinese sausage on it. And Chinese sausage is one of these things that my grandma used to cook for me. And she'd like steam it or fry it or all sorts of different variations, mix it with rice. Um, And it's just one of my favorite ingredients that I've ever had. And so it took me quite a few trials to figure out how to get this to play right on a pizza. But ultimately, you know, we put it with, it's a white base pizza. So it's mozzarella, a little bit of oil, garlic base. We have the Chinese sausage. We have shaved Brussels sprouts all over it. And then we put a soy chili glaze over the top to finish when it comes out. And it's just this like nice, sweet and savory pizza that we introduce, but only during the Chinese New Year. So really, I'm, I'm just offering the styles that I love to eat. And as I as I delve into the pizza world more and more, you know, I'm learning to appreciate more and more styles, and my understanding of styles changes. You know, as we move on, we're going to be hopefully the next spot we open will be offering another two new styles. My goal is for every one of my Chicago shops at least to be offering different styles. We're hoping not to double up on any styles anywhere. So we want people to come to Logan Square to get the Detroit, and then if they want the New York style, they're going to go to Wicker Park, and we'll have as little crossover as possible.
3: So are you skirting the question as to whether or not you're going to serve the, I mean, Chicago-style pizza?
18: My goal is to get there, but I, I think it has to be in the right context from the right place. I've been working on a, a bar-style, like a parlor-style pizza for the last two years. And, you know, it's tied to a project that unfortunately fell through recently. But, you know, we're looking at new spots, and we're hoping to find an opportunity to serve it at once, I, you know, once I get back on the train and start perfecting it. This quest of perfection can start
3: on the fringe. In the periphery of the surrounding metropolis. Or just across the river, as is the case with Dan Richer's Razza in New Jersey, a bridge and tunnel away from the southern tip of Manhattan. Whereas New York City is the sliced king, Richer humbly
1: recants the garden state in his own book, The Joy of Pizza. Razza means pure bread in Italian. It's kind of like the celebration of what makes something unique. Kind of celebrating the fact that we are all unique, uh, and those that uniqueness should be should be celebrated.
3: But was it a destination or an in between? Because not not to not to rag on Marawan, but I've always known it as uh, that place in between the Amboys and Red Bank. Uh,
1: so anywhere we were, there was there was a pizzeria and you know by the time i was in high school we, you knew the ones that you liked going to and the ones that weren't really worth it pizza was just so pervasive not just on a not just running errands with your your parents but also after baseball games and soccer games school parties friday school lunch you know pizza is is uniquely part of a child growing up, uh, certainly here in New Jersey. You know, for me, a lot of it is emotional. I got into pizza right after my mom passed away when I was 22. And I used it as a way to bring people together, which I desperately needed at the time because pizza is a a communal food, and I'm pretty obsessed with all communal foods. Like I love making a big batch of paella, right, and putting the paella in the, in the center of the table, and everyone gets a a slice or a piece of that one communal dish. Plus, when I was when I was first starting pizza, and I was going through all that grief of losing my mother, um, I found that it's it's impossible to be sad when you're engaged in learning something new. So for me, I, I just, I immersed myself in learning about, about pizza and about cooking and about bread because it kind of made me not as sad as, as I was.
3: There's something both melancholy and beautiful about putting yeah. yourself, you know, completely into something. Um, I, I've often been told that, you know, your food is, is not just an obsession, but um, it's a chef's touch. And then hearing you say that, you know, you didn't really work in professional kitchens. Uh, what are these nuances that you understand that maybe other
1: people don't? Right. So growing up in New Jersey, I, um, my, the pizza of my childhood is not wood-fired or Neapolitan in origin. Um, I grew up eating a slice of pizza that you could pick up with your hands that wouldn't fall apart, wouldn't droop, is not soggy. When you bite into it, there's an audible crunch. Um, There's a crispness to it. But the main thing is the, the structural integrity of that pizza. Right. It's structurally sound enough for you to pick it up with your hands and not get messy. Okay. That's the pizza I grew up on. And while I had these wood fired ovens that I was committed to working, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to produce Neapolitan pizza because that just didn't, it didn't connect with me in an emotional way. So I had to figure out what, what did I want to make? And that's when I started coming up with a list of characteristics about pizza that I wanted to recreate in my product. I knew I wanted to be able to pick it up with my hands. I knew I wanted it to be crispier than Neapolitan-style pizza. I knew I wanted to have flavors of fermentation that were floral and complex. And then I just started adding one characteristic after the next over, over the course of 20 years. My book is largely based around around that, uh, but I, I just, I, I named it. I named what I wanted to produce because you can't build a house without a set of blueprints, right? So I created this set of blueprints for myself rather than relying on, uh you know, the rules of Neapolitan pizza or what they say makes a great New York style pizza. I wanted to create something unique and different and something that was deeply personal to me, but that also brought great enjoyment to anyone who was eating it. Can this
3: ideal only exist in New Jersey? Can it only Absolutely be in Razza?
1: Absolutely not. The, your location doesn't dictate whether your product is good or bad. Your location doesn't dictate what characteristics the pizza will, will have. Not all New Jersey pizza is the same. Not all New York pizza is the same, right? There's, there's so many different styles of pizza. Pizza is this overarching category of food, but within it, there's many different food groups, I feel like. You know, Chicago pizza and comparing Chicago pizza to Neapolitan pizza to New York style pizza, they're all in the same conversation, but they're, they're different foods, right? It's like trying to compare a, a steak with a, a braised short rib. They're just different things. They come from the same place, but they're very different.
3: Now, I'm looking at the pizzas that you have right now, and there's a margarita. And there's a Jersey margarita. So what makes the Jersey margarita definingly Jersey?
1: Okay, so first of all, let me, let me tell you, I am obsessed with the margarita pizza. Mm-hmm. If I could make one pizza for the rest of my life, it would definitely be the margarita pizza. Why is that? Because it's, it's so ubiquitous, right? And I feel like within the margarita pizza, there's infinite variation. If you change one ingredient... It completely changes the pizza, and I'm endlessly intrigued by that. A big debate in the pizza community is does the basil go on before the bake or after the bake? I like it both. So why not have two different versions of the margarita? First of all, we have about five different versions of the margarita that we that we rotate through throughout the year. Uh, we have the Jersey margarita right now, uh, which has field grown New Jersey tomatoes um, that are ripe red tomatoes, not in a can. We just run them through a food mill to crush them, and that's the tomato sauce on the pizza. Now, when you contrast that with our standard margarita that has the best possible uh, canned tomato that that I can find, canned tomatoes and fresh tomatoes are very, very different things. We also change the cheese. The cheese on The Jersey margarita comes from Sussex County, which is all the way up in northern New Jersey. We see an insane amount of variation through the year based on what the cows are eating. Um, So the color will change from bright yellow in April, May, and June when the cows are on super fresh young grass Compared to in the wintertime, it dies down to a more pale white color that is because they're, they're eating hay in silage, right? It doesn't have that glorious chlorophyll in it. Uh, and, and, you know, most people would say they don't want inconsistency, but I think inconsistency when it comes to agricultural products is to be celebrated.
3: What risks are you willing to take to make pizza something that people
1: maybe hadn't seen before? It's something I, I, um, I think about a lot, right? How far do we want to push it? How creative and interesting and unique do we want to get, right? And for me, it all comes down to the fact that my primary responsibility is to bring joy to people and to make our guests happy. It's not to be chefy about it and not to be creative about it. It's to bring happiness to people. So I always approach every pizza that we create with, will this make everybody happy who tries it? Or will there be something about this pizza that somebody won't like? That's always my first thought. And then... You know, I don't want to make pizza that requires a tweezer to place ingredients on top of it, right? There's something raw and rustic and real about pizza that I don't ever want to lose that.
3: Heading northeast along Interstate 95 will take you to Mystic, Connecticut, known for its seaport, but it will also take you to the past, present, and future of pizza, the past a 1988 movie entitled Mystic Pizza, featuring Julia Roberts, Annabeth Gish, and Lily Taylor as sisters and friends working at the local pizzeria during a summer while in high school. The Zalepos opened up the real Mystic Pizza in the early 1970s, their own slice of heaven which inspired the movie. The present and future, James Wayman, founder of Nana's Bakery and Pizza, who serves sourdough pies with extra umami that are part of Mystic's current sea change.
19: Happy accident, I guess. I, I drove to go to school in Johnson Wells in Providence in 1994, uh, graduated from there in 96, moved upside of Boston for a little while. Um, and then I had a cousin that lived in Mystic and I'd come down to visit him and I just kind of, I loved it and had an occasion to move here and I haven't left since. The pizza was born out of the desire to create amazing organic sourdough bread. And the pizza followed as kind of uh, not not an afterthought but of as an aha moment of we we should add this to what we're doing. We can create delicious bread. Why not make amazing pizza? I believe our business is more than anything. It's about people. before customers, I think about the the farmers and the people that create our food and the relationships that I've kind of forged with them over the last twenty years in this area. Um, and then of course, the people that come in every day. Um, and if you can kind of create that whole circle with an amazing staff that really enjoy what they're doing, you're sourcing amazing ingredients from your, and supporting your local economy and kind of uplifting small farmers. And then the, the customer base and that community um, has access to wonderful, healthy, amazing food. I think it's perfect. Well, let's talk about those local
3: ingredients, what local ingredients end up in and on your pizza?
19: I would start with the dough. Our wheat comes from a farm in Coventry and it's a hard red winter wheat. Every single vegetable uh, that's a topping for our pizza is sourced locally as well. We use this amazing corn that's been grown in in New England for centuries at this point. Um, It came to the family uh, that we buy it from the Davis farm in the 1620s from uh, the Narragansett and Wampanoag Indians. It's a kind of Flint corn and it's just such a neat story and we're one of the few people that actually have access to this corn and I thought it was a great idea to add a little texture to the bottom of our pizza with this cornmeal and it's just to me food has always has an amazing story and to add that story to our pizza is really cool.
3: You also make a couple things that go into your pizza, specifically your sauce, that are unique to not just Mystic, Connecticut, but pizza in general. Can you talk to me about umami and how it finds a place in what you do?
19: I was lucky enough, three or four, I think four years ago at this point, to delve deeply into the world of koji, um, which, when you say umami, it is koji is a mold spore that helps to create that. Um, and have since uh, co-founded a company with a gentleman named Bob Florence called Maromi, um, where we make and grow our own koji, shoyu, um, and some other sauces as well. So I think of this as kind of the foundation and flavor base. It's in everything from our drinks to our pizza to our baked goods, um, from miso to rice koji to shoyu. And in our pizza particularly... Our pizza sauce, it's mixed with something called shio koji, which uh, translates to rice co- uh, salt koji, and it's a solution of water, rice koji, and salt that we lacto-ferment and then add to our tomatoes that we then roast, and that's it. And then um, we use dehydrated shoyu leaves that we mix in with a uh, our garlic butter for our white pies as well. Shoyu um, leaves are what's left over after pressing choyu, um, which we then dehydrate powder, and mix into our uh, Parmesan Reggiano as well.
3: So you mentioned Parm. Mm -hmm. That's umami. Why did you feel like you needed more layers of umami? And what does umami do for that mouthfeel, that flavor profile, or maybe even that elasticity of the dough itself?
19: I mean, you always can have more, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I would actually say that Parmesan Reggiano is one of my favorite foods in the whole world. Um, I can eat just chunks of it all day long and it makes me happy i i love the texture of it already um it's you know it's got that kind of like almost crunchiness to it but when i added the shoyu leaves to it it was actually first i did it in kind of a preparation of a y pepe it was kind of a revelation it just it took something that's already heavy and umami and then just like boosted it up that next level and to me that's the power of koji you can take things that are already delicious, really flavorful, really great ingredients. And if you add that, it kind of amplifies those even more. And, and you know, our bodies, one of the things that Koji does is creates uh, amino acids, something that our bodies crave. So it makes this very craveable food and pizza, which is already supremely craveable.
3: I think the most interesting part of the movie was uh a critic comes in the fireside critic and eats their pizza. And he's dressed in like this professorial Sherlock homey looking thing. Um, And you can't really get a tell on whether or not he likes the pizza. And then airs his television show talking about mystic pizza and is smitten with it. He says it's superb. That's the word he uses. And it's all based around a secret ingredient in their sauce. Do you feel the same way about introducing umami into your sauce?
19: I I think that definitely brings us to another level of deliciousness for sure, and and I don't know if it is unique in the world. Everybody has done a bit of everything always, but I, I do believe at least where where we are, it is unique. But I. I wouldn't say the umami. I would just say it's just another great ingredient we use that adds to all the other great ingredients, which which I believe makes delicious food.
3: Stars and Stripes have many more pizza styles that we haven't covered in this episode, and we'd like to hear from you. What kinds of regional pies should we try next season? Thank you to our sponsors, Baking Steel, Uni, and Miyoko's Creamery. Guests, Sarah Minnick, Ken Forkish, Kathy Wims, Anthony Tassanello, Brandoni Pepperoni, everyone on the Wisconsin Pizza Farms, Steve Dolinsky, Peter Regas, Derek Tung, Dan Richer, and James Wayman. Music by Carol Cleveland Sings, Jack Inslee, our engineer, our logo and episode art by Jenny Acosta, and of course, Modernist Cuisine. In episode nine, traverse the world in search of global styles. Be it Buenos Aires, Argentina, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Japan, Italy, or elsewhere, pizza is a universal language. This episode of the Modernist Pizza Podcast is brought to you by Miyoko's Creamery, revolutionizing pizza with our world-changing, new, liquid vegan pizza mozzarella. Loved by chefs and foodies, Miyoko's liquid vegan pizza mozzarella melts, browns, bubbles, and tastes just like a great cheese should, with 98% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than traditional animal milk mozzarellas. Why does your mozzarella matter? Because if dairy farms were a country, they'd be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Americans eat over 3 billion pizzas a year. That's a huge opportunity to make a difference. The Miyoko solution delicious cheese made sustainably from plant milk founded by renowned vegan chef Miyoko Schinner Miyoko's is the world's most advanced plant milk creamery pioneering the art of combining old world cheese making techniques with new innovative technology to craft mouth-watering cheeses and butters to learn more about delicious liquid vegan pizza mozzarella follow Miyoko's Creamery on social and visit Miyoko's.com today use the code modernist to get 15% off your next order